Hey everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interview Mike Newman, CEO at Returnity Innovations. Returnity is the pioneer in the elimination of single-use shipping packaging. And what this means is, if you look at your Amazon packages, packages that you get from your favorite brands, they typically come in these single-use poly mailers or cardboard boxes. And Returnity changes that entirely by giving brands tailor-made reusable shipping packages that after they get delivered to the customer, can that be brought back to the warehouse and reused at least 40 times over. And in the episode, Mike and I will discuss how Returnity actually started as a reusable bag company incubated at now famous fashion company ThreadUp, how exactly Returnity partners with brands and either integrates or changes their existing systems, the magic that goes on behind the scenes to enable all of the above, the systemic issues that are plaguing existing courier systems like UPS, DHL, and how exactly government and private industry can step up to solve these issues. And of course, the one big idea rotting away in his idea graveyard. So without further ado, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Mike Newman, CEO at Returnity Innovations. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Mike, let's start with the basics. What is Returnity? Returnity is a company that's for brands, retailers who are under economic and public pressure to just be more sustainable with how they are delivering goods to their clients. And so we make the reusable bags and boxes that can make that journey a uh, more sustainable and customer-friendly uh, way of getting goods around than cardboard boxes or poly mailer bags. So I actually, I first discovered Returnity. I was having founder of Dishcraft on the show. That's actually how you know, she connected us. And I was doing some digging and I was like, oh my God, this is, br- this is the solve. So for the listeners who haven't seen what Returnity looks like, paint a picture uh, of what the solution looks like and how brands are using Returnity today. Absolutely. The most well-known product that we have in the field today are Rent the Runways, iconic dark blue shippable garment bags, which particularly women between you know the ages of, I don't know, 20 and 40 are, are most prominent with that product. Mm-hmm. But and that's sort of indicative of the the design sensibility and the sort of flexibility that reusable packaging that we as we make it allows for, you can really come up with these really interesting and user-specific types of shippers, whether they're rigid boxes or bags, you know, or, or, or anything in between. What's more less visible in that is the all the stuff that goes on behind the scenes that actually makes it viable and scalable. And, and what I mean by that is. When we first started, we figured out how to make these reusable bags and we thought they were cool and we wanted to see, hey, who wants to switch from cardboard or poly to reusable? And what we learned is that the product is secondary. So the product is the tangible execution of that, that all that skill and knowledge and hard work, but it's actually the systems behind it that make it viable because reusables are only better economically and environmentally if they're actually reuse. So making sure that you can plug it into a system that enables reuse is, as turns out to be the harder and more central part of our work. But we also just making these really distinctive, cool bags and boxes that when they show up on your doorstep, make you go, wow, is the big payoff that the the whole thing allows. I mean, yeah, on the surface, if I'm a customer, you really made it dead simple for me to participate in this type of system. But to your point, it really is a very sophisticated combination of of factors and systems that need to work perfectly in order to make the economics work for the brand and for your company. But I actually want to rewind just a second because before we get into the nitty gritty of what the product looks like, how the collaborations manifest. If we go back to the early days when 
Returnity is just starting up. What does that initial Eureka or customer relationship look like? Did it always start as the bag it looks like today that I'm seeing that zips open? I mean, just talk me through like really what that first mile looked like and how the very first customer collaboration came to life. Yeah, absolutely. And our story, I think, is one that is probably more common than, than many people might imagine in that it actually wasn't our idea. And what I mean by that <laughs> is that Returnity was incubated out of a reusable shopping bag business. So our first, we were making reusable shopping bags that were predominantly being purchased by corporations to use as like giveaways at trade shows and stuff like that. It was just a small business that had found a little niche. And then one of those customers was ThreadUp in its very early days. And for those who don't know ThreadUp, it's become this sort of behemoth buyer and seller of used women's and children's clothing that now has partnerships with a ton of brand name retailers. They, I think they buy millions of garments a, a month. It's just become this huge sort of enabler of, of circular fashion. But this is like very early days. And they were buying these shopping bags from us. And the CEO and co-founder, James Reinhardt, said, Hey, any way you could make me a reusable shipping bag? And that was how it all started. We're like, I don't know. Let's see if we can. And he liked it enough of what we came up with that he invested and he brought in some others. And and so it really was this spark from James, who I have thanked many times for enabling us to get on this journey. And yeah, and so that's where it all started. It was like, all right, sure, thread up. Let's figure out how we can make this work for you. And 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 then it was like lightning in a bottle. All of a sudden that got really exciting for us and for them. And it wasn't success overnight, but it was clear that that challenge was putting us down a road that was frankly more exciting than reusable shopping bags. That is insane. Talk about, it's gotta be the perfect launch partner, right? Apparel, so probably not the most susceptible to damage, right? Like pretty flexible, malleable. Light, what what a great coincidence, right? If whatever you want to call it, and, and now I see I'm on maternity, and I'm looking at your advisors, right? You got Arthur Rubenfeld, President Emeritus of Starbucks, Andy Rendick, SVP of Supply Chain of Walmart.com. The list goes on about some of the top dogs that you brought into the fold, so. After ThreadUp, you build a solution that works for them. But then I imagine you have other people that catch wind and say they want something for themselves, but the product that you need to deliver is it's gotta be can't be like apples to apples, is my guess. What happens next after the ThreadUp collaboration and Maybe what I'm looking for is, do you start getting inbound? You start having to rev up product dev. You're like, holy crap, we need to build like these unique solutions for other partners that want to work with us. What happens next after that thread up coincidence? Yeah, I think the answer, uh, the first thing I would say is what's happened with Returnity, I think, is that we've been around long enough to be considered an overnight success. (laughs) And what I mean by that is, it wasn't like once that spark happened, everything was just go. And I think that's because what we learned through a lot of sweat and challenge was just how systems-driven packaging is rather than product-driven. And so what I mean by that is coming up with really cool reusable bags and boxes, our first approach was, hey, we made this reusable bag for ThreadUp. This thing is super cool. Here's the other ways we can adapt it and make it a rigid box or integrate your branding and do other things. And isn't that awesome? Who wants it? Hey, look what we got. (laughs) And what what we learned pretty quickly is that, as I said a bit about earlier, if you don't have a system to plug it into that makes it the right switch, it doesn't matter. Like companies Mm -hmm. just aren't going to do it. And so we had to kind of really get smart about the systems part of packaging and not the widget part of packaging. And it took a, quite a while. And I think the, so we kind of were like bouncing around quite a bit 
as we were trying to trying to figure that out. And frankly, I think two things had to happen for us to finally start to get scale momentum. The first was we had to we had to get to a point where we could talk to companies in a systems way rather than a product way. In other words, like we had to get past that sort of ego part of like how cool is this bag we designed and be more flexible in how we approached and who we approached and why we approached to start a journey towards integrating reusables. And this and because selling a selling a product is frankly much easier than systems because it's just here's the thing, it costs this much, let's go. We had to kind of get out of our own way, I think. But the other thing is we just got lucky. The whole rise of the circular economy, be it Rent the Runway or Newly or Black Tux or others, just created this sort of ready-made market for us to finally get traction within as well. That initial push from James and ThreadUp was over six years ago now. Yeah, So it, it didn't happen fast. It happened slow, as often happens with startups. It's slow and fast and slow and fast. And and it took a number of years until we could kind of get everything lined up. I, I want to peek under the hood a little bit because you're selling a product is, is quite simple. But when you're talking about asking a brand to integrate an entirely new system, you have to like procure the actual packaging supply. You then need to integrate it into whatever your chain, existing chain looks like or update the chain so that it can accommodate accordingly. What actually happens behind the scenes that makes this a green light for brands that you partner with? It's yeah. It turns out that like packaging, you don't think about packaging too much generally on purpose, right? Like the cardboard box and the poly mailer bag for all intents and purposes have been the same thing for years, decades now and consumers and retailers and, and logistics providers, like nobody really thinks about it that much anymore because they don't need to. It's just this known entity. It's the same for everybody and away you go. But what it turns out when you try and disrupt that market, what you find is that Actually, basically every single stakeholder a company has is impacted by and influenced by packaging. It's supply chain, logistics, warehousing, how efficient is it to pack it out? What's the branding for finance? Am I, I'm used to buying, having a budget every month for cardboard, and now I'm buying an asset up front. So like, how am I budgeting for this thing? And how am I tracking this asset in the field? And then for consumers, like, how do I use the thing? And making sure it's they send it back, and that you're getting them back from them, and making sure UPS isn't going to throw a fit because they've decided they don't like it, et cetera. So it's actually really complicated to disrupt this like super dumb, boring cardboard box or poly mailer. And what that has meant for us has is that we have to be really iterative and stepping stepstone approach to integration with new clients. Mm -hmm. So nobody goes from zero to a million overnight. And frankly, they shouldn't. It's, mm -hmm. it's really about, all right, let's talk about needs. Let's do some digital renderings for you of how we can execute the package part in a reusable. Let's figure out all the backend systems changes or mm -hmm. requirements. Are you going to do those things? Are we returning going to do them for you? Are we bringing in a partner like DHL or UPS or Happy Returns or these other clients that we work with that help run some of the systems part? Then we're going to make you a physical prototype that you're going to kick around. You're going to want to change five things on. Then we're going to make you another physical prototype. Then we're going to make 50 so you can do test shipping. Then we're going to make 500 so you can do consumer-facing testing. And then you're six, nine months later, and they're ordering 100,000 bags or boxes. So it really has to and, – and trying to cut corners on that, we've just learned, means you're not going to have the right buy-in internally, externally. You're going to inevitably miss something that you wanted. And, uh, and so as frustrating as it can be for us to have to be slow, at the end of the day, it, it allows the partner to get confidence in the solution and confidence in us as the provider. And then we're like off and running. But it's a really, it is not, if you want to scale, this is pulling back slightly, I think the, the lesson that I think is applicable here and, and many other types of businesses as well is that Going fast is not always going better. And like here, that is certainly true. You're, this is a big change that once it's made, you want it to be permanent or close to it. And so you just have to be patient that you're going to help. And then for the partner, they have to really want to do this, right? Like mm -hmm. I'm not interested in that press release 
I call it, I call it the magic thinking of sustainability, which is oftentimes companies with genuine intent just want to be greener and show that they're doing things that are better for the planet and their customers. And it's heartfelt, but they kind of rush to it so they can get that press release, as opposed to being really very rigorous about how they analyze and implement. And it should go through that same process as any other new business initiative, right? Sustainability doesn't somehow like magically just work because it's better for the planet. If you're launching a new product or service as a company, you're going to be very rigorous about market analysis and launch plans and all these things. You have to do the same thing with with reusable packaging. And so you have to treat it as a new launch and go through that same process. I've just learned that like companies that are coming at it for a quick win and because they're just driven to show that they're doing something, inevitably it doesn't scale or stick because they didn't really do the work. And that can slow, that might mean that some initiatives that we'd be able to do quickly don't happen, but it means that the ones who go through that process love it, stay with it, scale with it. We have clients who have already done like fourth or fifth orders since we started working on them a few years ago, because as they grow or as they, they can move it into new places, they know it's working. So it's less, it's not plug and play in that sense, but it allows for a much stronger long-term kind of collaboration. Wow. I want to dig a little bit further into the details because I think this is really what uh, distinguishes a sustainable enterprise from something that looks great on the surface but isn't viable long term. So if we look at how Returnity integrates with a brand, let's say I'm Blue Land, right? One of great guests on the show, and I'm interested in Returnity. Will Returnity integrate at a 3PL? So we'll actually send the packaging solutions there. And then from there, it's kind of like hands off and you provide, to your point, some type of like control center where a head of supply chain or logistics can have their finger on the pulse of how many individual units are out there in the field, how many are getting returned back into our own circular chain. I'm curious, is that how kind of above and beyond you and the team are going to make this work for brands? Or is there another approach that kind of makes this somewhat accommodating for a brand with an existing approach to warehousing and then fulfilling product? Yeah. Yeah. So I say there's six key skills or Uh capabilities that go into making reusables work. And they are, you have to be able to design the right bag or box for the client specific needs. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of interest in the idea of standardization around last mile shipping and delivery packaging. It worked for the ocean shipping container. It worked for the pallet. Can't Uh we standardize this last mile as well? And I think what we've learned is that the answer is in most instances, no. It's really expensive to ship the last mile and companies need it to be the exact size that they need it to be and the exact content protections they need and not bigger or smaller. So you have to be able to have that flexibility. Then you have to be able to make the thing efficiently, low cost, you know, high quality. Then you got to be able to get it back low cost and easy. You have to clean it and sterilize it. And then because it's an asset, you need to know, as you were asking, you need to know where it is in the field and optimize your inventory and make sure you've got enough of them ready to go for the next day's shipments and all that kind of stuff. And then finally, there's a consumer part. They, they need to know what they're doing and how to do it and, and if there's incentives associated with the return. So like, there's the consumer-facing part. There's the internal you know, data and internal data. There's cleaning. There's getting them back. There's making them and designing them. And the answer to like how much we do and how much the company that's using them does and how much a third-party partner does is really case-dependent. Now, ultimately, I say there's three kinds of customers in our world. There's the circulars, there's the circular adjacent, and then there's the you know, non-circular. And what that means is like circulars are rent the runway where it's out, it's back every time. That is their business. And a lot of the systems for circularity are native to them. They don't Our bags get shipped out of Secaucus, New Jersey, or Dallas, full of clothes. They go back to Secaucus and and Dallas. They're unloaded in the morning. 
they're put through a washer and dryer and they're loaded up with clothes and they're back out the door the same day. And the runway doesn't need me in the middle of that. That's their core competency. They're great. But if you're a company that's like circular adjacent or non-circular, meaning like you are not because you set out to be circular, but you actually already have a lot of the attributes to do that. They may ask us to provide some of those beyond those, the sort of just design and manufacture the bags to do some of those other things for them. An example that would, you know, of what circular adjacent means is like furniture delivery. Now, that's usually white glove for bigger items, right? That you schedule a time, they come into your home, they put the sofa in the living room, they take all the packaging off of it, they unwrap it, and they throw that back in the truck. And then it's recycled or disposed of locally. That's the experience today. And as we're working now with some of the furniture companies, that's a really easy adjustment to make it completely circular. You're already taking the packaging back today. Why can't it be reusable? Of course it can. And then on a company by company basis, like, all right, do you guys want it to go back to your warehouse where you're cleaning it and doing all that stuff? Or do you need us to be in the middle? Or do you need us to help you set that up in your warehouse? So it's cleaned and sterilized and and ready for the next pack out. Do you want us to bring in DHL or UPS to help manage some of those systems for you? Do you have your own asset, you know, inventory system that you're just going to, because we typically barcode our packaging, actually have the first client going out with RFID integrated into our packaging in a month. Nice. So is, do you want that part or do you not want, do you have a vendor that you use? We're really flexible about that. But those mm. six skills ultimately are kind of the things that are needed in, in our view. And then which of them we're doing, which of them the client's doing, and which of them a third party's doing is, is ultimately been pretty case dependent. Got it. Man, this is so freaking fascinating. Because I know like even another example. So I, I, I did an experiment product business earlier this year. And, and we went like relatively all in it. We put several thousand dollars into the product. But because the, the product was low ticket value, we said, you know what? Let's send this in media mail. We were told by mm. our 3PL, it's the cheapest option. You're not going to get tracking on it, but that way we can make the margins work. And <laughs> maybe 500 orders in, because we did kind of like a blitz scale promo approach, got like a bunch of orders and virtually all of them were intercepted because media mail only works. <laughs> With media, DVDs or pamphlet or something of that nature. And we were told by our 3PL that it would work. And we modeled everything around those economics, right? How much we'd pump into advertising, how we negotiated pack and ship, et cetera. Like it was all bundled in. And when I look at Returnity, so this is just like one symptom or pain point in figuring out the logistics that goes on behind the scenes that most customers aren't aware of. But as you build these packaging solutions, <laughs> you also have to meet like a bunch of criteria by these institutions that move, that are responsible for moving the product from point A to point B. When you talk about these skill sets and the capabilities, but what really you guys do to enable all of the above, this is a feat. This is really a feat. Just- I don't want to overstate how far. Look, I think we have, we are on that journey. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to say this all hums perfectly. It is a, a, a never ending evolution and, and it's going to take time. I and mean, we're working with a number of the carriers now, for example, on leveraging their brick and mortar footprint, meaning like UPS stores kind of thing. As collection points for the empty packaging. And they already do it, obviously, a lot of product returns. You buy something on Amazon, you can go bring it to a Kohl's or a UPS store, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And similarly, they got trucks going out to homes every day that are full and coming back empty. And why can't they bring empty packaging back with them? Mm -hmm. It's turning an aircraft carrier. It is slow. (laughs) And the carriers in general hate returns. For good reasons, if you think about their job, just to every day get a billion packages, like all of a sudden people say, hi, I'm here today for you to send this thing from Topeka to Washington. And like they got to figure that out in real time every day. And that's really hard. And then returns is even that much harder because there's so little visibility and it's, so they don't like returns, but they understand that like the logistics of last mile and then what first mile on the return as as we call it 
is increasingly important to the e-com to making e-commerce work. And this is such an area of sensitivity. So I think the whole industry, however you want to define it, the logistics companies, the retailers, the the packaging companies, everybody appreciates that like this behemoth of, of industry is like slowly turning towards this new future, figuring out how it's going to work, what their roles are. But it is messy and it's going to take it's going to take time. If you don't start now, you're never going to get to the finish line. You and I both live in the city and the, the first thing that comes to mind. So I, if you're talking suburbs, I'd actually imagine that returns is a little easier because you got your car right at the end of the, the sidewalk. You pick up the bag, you put it back into your box truck. But you look at maybe urban centers like New York, maybe it's just maybe it's an anomaly where I live here in Hell's Kitchen. But you have these people that are actually carting around mail. Like they have those little mini postal carts. So I could imagine them having to lug down bags after walking up or going into an apartment building, then putting it into that little cart, going to the next building is hard. <laughs> and then you think about you as a supervisor at UPS, USPS that has to institute these changes, you really have to have everyone bought in to this type of change. Because at the moment, the but both like the processes that all of the people have been trained underneath, but also like quite literally the physical tools have not been designed for returns in nature. Like the carts that these post office employees lug around could probably be redesigned to better accommodate returns. There's all these different like ancillary opportunities that I think will start to um, wedge and, and, and head out as returns start to be uh, a more default form of, of commerce and the economy. I don't uh, know if you've had a chance to nerd out on that at all, but I, that to me <laughs> feels like a whole nother kind of ocean of headaches in the interim, but opportunity in the long term. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. I have a, we have this picture in our company you know, pitch deck that I took a year or two ago that's a FedEx truck parked in lower Manhattan. And I didn't plan this. I was just walking by it. I was like, this is the, this picture basically tells our entire company story. And it's a FedEx truck. It's parked on, I don't know, Fourth Street in lower Manhattan. And it's just vomited out boxes. <laughs> like It's like they basically took over this stretch of, of street and there's like hand carts and boxes stacked. And they basically made it their own little like local distribution hub. And then they've got employees who are like wheeling boxes all over the, the neighborhood to deliver them. And it's insane. And, and it's, it's indicative, I think, of how the built environment, urban and suburban, I mean, like the problem with suburban is that you don't have the same here in, in New York and a lot of other municipalities, you have these apartment buildings who are literally having to hire extra front desk staff just to manage e-commerce packages that come in and have a room dedicated to that because there's so much of it. But the suburban challenge is a different one in the sense that it's not like there's one truck making the rounds every day. FedEx, UPS, DHL, USPS, like they're all in Amazon now. There's all these trucks on the road constantly in those environments as well. And it's like a pollution problem. It's a safety problem. It's, it's a problem in its own way. So it's not working right now. And what the carriers will even tell you is that you're, and you're going to, the story that you haven't seen yet, but will be a story this uh, holiday season is your listeners should know, order your holiday gifts if you're getting them delivered early. Like this is going to be a mess because they don't have the capacity to handle all this direct delivery. It's all just like creaking and governments are increasingly kind of fed up with it. And yeah, I think there's a ton of room for innovation from the private sector already and a lot of momentum and all sorts of different paths. Drones might get the attention because it seems futuristic and cool. It's not that futuristic and cool. It's insane. But here in New York, you've got already got tests of, ele of electric bikes pulling carts with packages and things like that. There's a lot of like more lower tech and lighter touch, more scalable things happening. Mm -hmm. But governments are getting fed up and there's going to be in the same way that legislation is you know, been getting rid of single-use plastic shopping bags, you are already starting to see that extend to 
how packaging is done for shipping delivery as well. And so I think the private sector will help lead, but governments are, are increasingly going to push companies there. And I think the smart, big e-commerce brands are coming to terms with that they need to get in front of this because not just consumers are demanding it and not just because the built environment is not really designed to be able to handle the volume that's being pushed through it, but also because government's going to make them. Mm-hmm. All right. This is really interesting. I think twofold one, because of how close you are to the source of all of these problems. But I actually want to, I want to nerd out on things that you're excited about. It could be kind of almost like requests for startups, requests for products. And I don't want to do like a a broad strokes because I know it's, uh, I don't want to oversimplify, but in, in your opinion, when you hear about these problems, and I know a lot of them are native because of how cities are built. <laughs> They're quite difficult to change physically. What are some of the solves? Like over the next few years, how does government alleviate some of these problems? What are the big gaping opportunities for private industry and aspiring founders to solve along the edges? Again, I don't want to oversimplify, but are there any low-hanging fruit here? Like where are the opportunities to make some of these problems go away or at least go from really bad to eh, a little bit bad, but not terrible. Yeah. I think that at the end of the day, the biggest impacts are come from first mile and last mile. And, and what I mean by that is when in general, our infrastructure is quite efficient at getting things to within a mile of your home, that mm-hmm. number is, it could be five, it could be 10, whatever. It's just as, think of it as like the last aggregation point. <laughs> like mm-hmm. we're efficient at moving things in bulk to localize aggregation points. Mm-hmm. And then fanning it out to wherever it is, a suburban home, a rural delivery address, or an apartment building, it's the same, it's a different but same problem. That's mm-hmm. when the, the real inefficiencies come in from trucks on the road, dealing with waste, like all those things. And so I think what you are going to see is this acceptance of and requirement for consumers doing a lot more of the first and last mile. And you're seeing it here in the city in New York a lot already where like my wife bought something on Amazon and we needed to return it. And I took it to the local UPS store Um, or, you know, what our client Happy Returns does for a ton of e-commerce brands, whereas if you buy Rothy's shoes or like a shirt on Everlane, you decide you want to return it. You can just go to any return bar they have nationwide and in person without a bag or a receipt or anything. Just, they just scan the barcode on your phone and take the item from you and put it in the box that they have behind the desk. Like, when the consumer is a partner in the first and last mile, it makes it dramatically less lower environmental impact, also just significantly less expensive and less infrastructure stress. Interesting. And, and so I think that's, to me, it's it, that's going to be a huge part of the puzzle. And then the other part mm-hmm. I do think will be the work that's being done to diversify people one a cliche that i think is overstated is how much you know better europe is on environmental issues than the us i think that's overstated in ways that are are subtle and one of them is just that a lot of the these are older more compact cities generally in europe than you have in the us just because of when the country is developed and so there it's actually easier for them to be new york is a very environmentally friendly city compared to a lot of others in the US? Is it because we're smarter, better, greener? Obviously, New Yorkers would like you to believe that. But a lot of it's just because like we live in apartments that are inherently more <laughs> energy efficient than big suburban homes. And But what Europe does better than we do is use bikes to deliver things. And so, so part of it is going to be that, moving to electric vehicles and moving to lower impact transportation. But ultimately, when consumers are a part of that process by going to pick up a thing or going to drop off a thing rather than waiting for it to arrive at your doorstep, individually delivered, it has a huge impact and it it enables a lot more systemic sustainability. 
Like we could geek out on this stuff for a while. I'm, this is a lot of this is new to me. So I've got my wheels turning, but I think even on the happy returns example, it also shows that there's just a ton of opportunity for people who want to participate in this very kind of widespread solution surface area. I, I wonder, does, and you said that Happy Returns is a client of yours, but I'm naive maybe because I don't fully understand. I could also imagine it coming to odds because I would imagine the returnity model, most of the time, are customers leaving it on their doorstep and then DHL or UPS is then picking up that package. Or I guess just out of pure curiosity, how does the Happy Returns X Returnity partnership manifest? Yeah, no, there's a, we. It's a really good collaboration, I think, in the sense that. So first of all, they have this disparate return bar network. You can go in any paper source or world cost plus market or a whole host of locations. And with your returns, you just go to the cashier and say, "I've got a return," and they scan it. It's quick. And then they throw it in a returnity box, a box that we made, that we make for them that's behind the counter. And then it's shipped out to um, the re- to Happy Returns facilities where they're sorted and they do the thing. So we're the packaging engine behind that network. And then, but so like we're able to sort of power that internal logistics network for them with reusable packaging. And then increasingly, there's just a lot of overlap in the sense that like they are optimizing product returns for their Mm -hmm. partners and we're trying to optimize the packaging part of that for a lot of those same companies and it allows us to to really collaborate with these brands there's a couple of companies that we're working with that are already happy returns clients and will can utilize then their customers can utilize the happy returns return network to also return their packaging so if happy returns is already bringing back pair of shoes or a shirt or something for somebody as a return, they can bring the empty shipper back at the same time and sort it and partner with us to get it back to the retailer. It's all part of this like behind the scenes infrastructure build out that's making product and increasingly also packaging circularity more you know efficient. Ooh, that is super interesting. That's like a, that's a rock star partnership right there too. I have a couple more questions before we segue to my favorite portion of the, of the interview, which is the idea graveyard. And it's around the value proposition for brands. So uh, at the top of the interview, you spoke a little bit about w- what you're looking for in a brand partner. And it resonated a lot with me, right? You're not looking for the press release. You're not looking for someone to, to greenwash. It, it really is someone who has this explicit interest in changing the way things are done today. But but certainly, there's a lot of things that still need to make sense. The economics need to make sense. And this needs to be economically viable decision in one way or another. And that is actually how you position it. Return fixes rising packaging costs, among other things that we've discussed. But I'm curious, from, from a pricing standpoint, how does an asset that can probably live many times over versus the very cheap kind of cardboard box or poly mailer look? What what is, if I'm in a a potential or prospective customer of yours, how should I be thinking about the opportunity and what's the, the kind of key, maybe costing value proposition for me? Yeah, I think people tend to assume and understandably that the uh, economics are driven by the cost of the reusable, like just how much does it cost to buy a reusable shipping bag versus how much it costs to buy a poly mail event. And in practice, that's not really the primary driver. The reason being is that, first of all, we're always trying to be cost competitive on an apples to apples basis or better. Meaning like if you're paying $10,000 a month for single use packaging, we want your equivalent spend on reusables to be 10000 or less, if at all possible, so that you can scale with it. You don't want to be spending more on packaging. 
And so the cost of the widget is relevant, but it is less relevant actually than the cost of the cycle of use. And what that means is, and what's most prominent in that analysis is how much does it cost to get it back to me to use again? If you rent the runway or Newly or Black Tux, the cost of return shipping is in, in a sense zero because I'm, I don't care if it's a single use or a reasonable bag or box, like Rent the Runway is already paying to get that thing back no matter what. You don't, that's not, switching between single use or reasonable is not add a new expense on return shipping. The return shipping cost is there no matter what. But if you're one of those like circular adjacent, <laughs> as I talked about, and today you're not paying to get shipping packaging back, like Happy Returns, if they just use cardboard boxes or like Everlane or others who are starting to use this for like store logistics, like shipping these things out to their stores with product, like bringing them back is a new cost. And that is ultimately where these programs really shine or struggle because, you know, it is most simplistic. If I'm sending you some, if you bought a pair of shoes online and we sent it to you in a cardboard box, most of the time you're keeping those shoes and you're just recycling the box locally. And my relationship with you is done as it relates to that, the packaging. But if I'm now sending it to you in a reusable, I'm saying, I'm super excited that you're keeping the shoes and that you love them. Now, here's how you just fold that box up flat. It collapses in on itself and you put it back in the mail and send it back to us so we can use it for the next order. And it costs $4 to ship an empty box back, let's just say. And it's replacing 50 cents of cardboard. That doesn't work, right? Brands are not going to sub and consumers are not really interested in subsidizing two, three dollars so that it can come in a reusable box. And whether the box costs $5 or 50, we guarantee it for 40 shipments. And by the time you've used it 15, 20 times, it's usually kind of breaking even on what you would have paid for single use. And then you're getting savings, but you're not getting savings if you pay a ton to bring it back. And so when clients, when we're talking to customers, like that usually is the first thing we need to talk about is, all right, how are we getting these back to you? If you're a rental business, easy, no problem. If you are using it like with your store associates, they can just bulk them up, like empty them when they get to the store and bring them back in bulk. And it's really cheap on a per item basis. And the math works really easily. If you don't usually have customers returning things to you, now it's more complicated. Now we need to talk about how you leverage these you know, relationships with Happy Returns or UPS or whoever, and like how we design this so that the cost of getting it back isn't so high that it makes it not viable. Because that's where these things actually really do live and die economically. Got it. Thank you as well for distilling that down. I want to ask one more question around kind of the state of circular. And it would be remiss for me not to bring up Loop. We had Loop on the show a couple months back. Um, and obviously, in many ways, y'all, I consider y'all pioneers of, of this system. I think you, you and, and Loop are probably a few among kind of many entrants that have actually scaled this type of approach to commerce in a big way. I, but I think the key distinction, and correct me if I'm wrong, is Loop has really taken a heavy consumer-facing approach to this type of economy. They are the ones that are onboarding customers one by one versus Returnity, which is like the magician and partner behind the scenes that enables brands to do that. Am I understanding that correct? What is What do you think is the key distinction between the two? And are you pumped for solutions like Loop? Do you think that something like Loop can scale and exist and coexist with Returnity? What's your kind of what's your critical take on Loop as a compatriot in the space, and then kind of broadly the distinction between you and them? Yeah, I think Loop is really been focused on primary packaging, which is the product packaging, what the shampoo or ice cream goes into, as opposed to the secondary packaging, which is mm -hmm. the packaging that gets the thing from A to B. So that's one primary difference. I think if you pull back mm -hmm. slightly and you look at TerraCycle more broadly and their sort of history as a business, they've always kind of been a branded experience, like front and center company. And that's just their DNA. It is about TerraCycle. It's about their brand. It's about their solutions. And when they sign up brand partners, it is meant to be that where TerraCycle kind of leads the way and the brands get to be a part of that. And yeah, it's a, just a different approach. I think that our view in on the world is that brands spend a lot of time and money 
on creating on creating customer relationships and creating differentiated customer relationships and differentiated products and solutions. And in particular in this space, competing with Amazon. And we believe that at the end of the day, shipping packaging should be <laughs> not why, or we believe the packaging is the means towards that. It isn't the thing, it's the thing that enables the thing. And by being at the service of these brands who need and invest so heavily in creating these distinct customer relationships, like that's a more scalable, stable approach to it than trying to supplant or take some of that. It's, that it goes in both ways, right? There's no doubt that for brands who are trying to establish their sustainability bona fides or like want to uh, project forward, like how they're being innovative and collaborative, that like the work that's by having these companies like ours or others being a part of that, publicly a part of that conversation can also help. So I'm not saying it's one or the other exclusively, but we just feel like, particularly as it relates to secondary packaging, it's like, get it there and get out of the way is <laughs> what our job is. And I don't think having Returnity's name all over that thing helps anybody. Like, no, it's about the brand and their relationship with their consumer. And we just want to make sure that they can do it in a really great way. Mm -hmm. That's such a great point. Mike, I want to segue to my favorite part of every interview. And it's this notion of the idea graveyard. And what it means is imagine a note in your notes app that has this laundry list of ideas that maybe at some point you thought was uh, the next billion or trillion dollar idea. And then you look back on it and it's uh, hysterically bad. Or conversely, an idea that is quite viable, you just don't have the time to work on it. So my question for you is, what are one of these ideas that you'd love to work on if you had the time to do, but for the time being is just rotting away in your idea graveyard? I will give you the joke one first, only because we it's it's the inside joke at the company that at least once a week gets some play, which is, and then I'll give you a more serious answer. But the the joke one is magnets. Like I like I every three to six months, I like throw this idea at our engineers. It's like, what if we use magnets to do this thing with the reasons or not? And then they have to like walk me through why it's a terrible idea. And it, it is always a terrible idea. <laughs> and now it's at the point where it's like anytime I throw or anybody else throws out something that's so on its face, obviously a bad idea. They just have to like, you know, say the word magnets or something like that. And like we all know, because <laughs> yeah, the thing about reusables is that they need to be able to close easily and then open easily and you need security. And I'm like, what if we use magnets to do the mic? Let's remember, these are going down metal, but like, so no, magnets, bad idea as much as I want them to be a good idea. I think that more like, but to be maybe a little bit more serious about it, I think that like, we, the thing that's in some ways the hardest thing to solve with reusables, and maybe the idea that like, I spent, it took way too long for me to realize was not working and maybe to be slightly more serious is, so my philosophy with Returnity has always been, first of all, be as great as possible at as few things as possible. I think a lot of startups fail is by trying to do too much and try and figure out the fewest number of things you have to be great at. But the other part of it has been like, don't make it as, 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 parallel to single-use packaging as possible. Similar sort of theory, right? If I, the fewer things that consumers and retailers and shippers have to change to in, in, you know, integrate reusables, the better. And one fundamental aspect of how packaging is moved today is like a peel and stick label, right? That's basically how everything is done. You peel, you know, print a label, peel it off, stick it to the bagger box and away you go. And so we had figured out how to make this like label pad that you could just peel and stick a label to and it would stay on and then when you wanted to do the next shipment, you could just peel it off really clean and put the next label on there. Because, you know, it's one of those like little details that actually is how reusables live and die and figuring it out is hard. And so I was like, no, you guys, we got to peel and stick. Like they've got printers for this, they got everything. And so we just stuck with that for so long. And in practice, what we kept bumping up against is, like, all right, we found the right base material, but you have to use the right kind of label and the customer has the right kind of printer and blah, blah, blah. And like, we just stuck with it for way too long because I got obstinate. And uh, at the end of the day, like I, we had to pull the ripcord. We still offer that. It's like a specialized solution for the right kind of 
play. But now we have four different labeling systems because like we, we have to start listening to our customers and they don't want to buy new label printers and they don't want to have to source the special labels. And you solved by solving one issue, you've created this whole other one. And, and I think labeling was indicative of being too stubborn around your product idea. And it, it took me like a year and a half. It took way too long for me to finally say, all right, you're right. Like I'm being way too stubborn about this and we have to think about it in a different way. And so now, like, now we're just so much more flexible about that stuff. But when you have this idea in your head and you feel like, no, it's the right one, it can be, as I learned, it can be really hard to kick it out of there. Oof. All men to that, my man. Mike, I, I would love to roll the red carpet for you. Are there any final call to actions, hiring needs, anything that you want to leave with our listeners? The floor is yours. Well, I thank you. First of all, thank you. This has been a lot of fun and uh, it's been great to kind of talk about our journey a bit. I think the main thing from our side is to say that I say that Returnee is the best cocktail party company I've been a part of back from the before times when we had cocktail parties because people are really sick of how much shipping and delivery packaging they have to deal with. And I think that's a genuine fatigue and frustration. But then, of course, if you ask people, well, okay, I accept that frustration. Are you buying less online than you used to because of that? And the answer is almost always, no, nah, I'm buying more. So we have this disconnect, right? We have these, this real genuine, I think, fatigue and frustration, but not a change in behavior. And so I think for consumers, what I would say is that there's no free lunch. There's no free ride. Like you are e-commerce and direct and like the way that these systems are evolving, I think is really customer friendly and really important. The pandemic has shown if it's done right, it can you know create safety in ways that are, are helpful for society, but it comes with a downside too. And so as we are working with partners and others, not just us, obviously, to create these new systems, you need to be a part of that journey too and accept that like you hold some responsibility in that. That means whether it's pressuring companies pressuring governments, or just being ready to say, yes, I, I accept that if I want the convenience of all this direct delivery, I might need to be taking some empty shipping packaging and dropping it off at a UPS store on my way to work. And that's part of being a good steward and citizen. Be ready for that. Like That, I think, is important that consumers feel like they're empowered and an important part of this journey, too. It's not just government, and it's not just companies and innovators. Mm -hmm. Mike, what a great place to end the conversation Thank you so much again for coming on the show. Congrats on so much success over the last six years, over the, the course of the journey. And I'm pumped to, to have you on anytime you're willing to come on the show again, because this was, 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 was such a riot. So thank you, Mike. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you. Hey there, you made it to the outro. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you're new here, welcome. If you're a longtime listener, thank you so much. We're actively casting for new guests on our show. So if you have a rock star founder or company in mind that's working on something cool, message me on Instagram at Peter A. Levin or email us, hello at ingothands.us. Thank you so much again and look forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday.